Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Is this thing on? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston and Dara Lind, and we are going to talk about scandals. We've got some big, some big Trump scandals this week, and conveniently, the president, in his effort to wriggle out of the encroaching tentacles of scandal, is sort of raising some policy issues about how the criminal justice system works, perhaps in an unprincipled way, driven more by his own needs than by systematic thinking about what the country needs. But, you know, as good a jumping off point as any. Yeah. Week by week, there is another aspect of the criminal justice system that, like, America is getting introduced to. Right. Which actually strikes me as a much more systematic way to deal with things than, like, law and order, where, you know, it's the variations of the facts of the case. I think that that this has been a more educational reality show than mm. many of the reality shows that we get about mm. the legal system. However, this does feel a little bit as if someone committed arson and via that arson, you learned a lot about housing regulations. Like, oh, oh there's, there's I had no it. idea what was allowed okay, to be. Okay, but let's start with the basics. So what happened here? We had an amazing split-screen day in which simultaneously at a federal courthouse in Alexandria, Paul Manafort is found guilty on uh, eight of the charges against him. Uh, we later learned that the sort of hung jury on the other counts, it was all one single holdout juror who did an interesting uh, interview after the fact where she talked about being a Trump supporter and really wanting it to be the case that Manafort was innocent, but he was just really guilty of these eight other things. But, you know, the fact that it was uh, 11 to 1 and the other charges underscores the fact that the government's odds at a retrial are not terrible. So he's under additional legal pressure, right? There's another trial in Washington, D.C. coming out. It should also be said he appeared to have drawn a fairly sympathetic judge in this case. So again, I mean, his odds of being found guilty of more stuff are kind of fairly high. And right. everyone is waiting to see, faced with all this pressure, faced with the conviction, faced with the possibility of a retrial, faced with the necessity of a second trial, is like, will Paul Manafort try to make a deal? And then in New York, Michael Cohn, the subject of apparently our most downloaded episode ever, The Many Scandals of Michael Cohn. Good episode. Very good episode. He pled guilty to a range of crimes, most of which 
relate to his taxi business and some fraudulent loan applications, some tax malfeasance, stuff like that. But they did include two counts of campaign finance violations, which was how we originally sort of got Michael Cohn in the news. This was to say that he basically used money to pay off Stormy Daniels in a way that was designed to advance the Trump presidential campaign without using campaign funds in a proper way and without disclosing it to the Federal Election Commission. And then he said in court that he did this at the behest of Donald Trump. And then his uh, attorney, Lanny Davis, went on the cable news shows very aggressively saying that like Michael Cohn really wants to talk to Robert Mueller about Trump Tower meeting and various other things. So you have one guy, Paul Manafort, brought to trial by Robert Mueller, and Mueller clearly trying to make a deal with Manafort. And then you have Michael Cohn being prosecuted by a separate group of attorneys who ostensibly, at least, have nothing to do with Donald Trump or the Russia inquiry. And Cohn's legal team is very aggressively out there trying to make a deal. And the special counsel doesn't appear interested. Right. Like it's it's worth noting that even though Mueller is not the person prosecuting Michael Cohen, that like it's not improper for the Southern District of New York attorneys to like turn, you know, to send notes back to the Mueller investigation right. and say, hey, by the way, I know that you thought that these charges were not relevant, but some of the stuff that Cohn is telling us seems like it might be of more use to you. In other words, Lanny Davis going on cable news as efficient a channel as this is to Donald Trump is not actually the most efficient channel to Bob Mueller. Right. And of course, it's, it's perfectly legitimate for prosecutors to like trade intermodally, right? Right, like, right. You can be guilty of some gun crime someplace. But if you want to get leniency and you have some evidence to offer that has absolutely nothing to do with what you're charged with, it's just it's up to the U.S. attorneys, right, if they want to make that deal or not. And so superficially, Lanny Davis going on television and saying this stuff can sort of raise, you know, Trump haters' level of appreciation, anticipation. But realistically, that's probably wrong. Like the fact that he's out there on television talking about this, you don't know for sure, but it, it seems to indicate that like their effort to communicate lawyer to lawyer in a quiet, organized way has like not produced benefits, presumably because Mueller feels that Cohn can't testify to anything that he doesn't already know, which it's basically bad news if you were hoping that Michael Cohn is going to go and be like, yes, here's this memo Donald Trump sent me about all his awesome Russia collusion. Um, it, It seems like if Cohn really had the goods, like this would not be playing out in the way that we're seeing. Right. It's useful to kind of understand what exactly Cohn pled guilty to this week, I think, to kind of, to understand where we go from here. And this is personally something I did not understand until I read a medical ACS piece about it this week. So can you like, can you talk us through what exactly Michael Cohn did and why this is a problem for Donald Trump? Yes. So right. Then then a separate issue is that Cohn seemed to be suggesting very clearly that he really does have the goods against Donald Trump on a different charge. Right. right. And so this is a campaign finance issue. America has a lot of campaign finance laws and they run sort of in two directions about you can't use campaign money for personal purposes. But if you are spending money on campaign purposes, you have to use your campaign account. Right. So one crime that Duncan Hunter, a Republican congressman in California, is um, 
a bunch of charges for now is you can't take campaign contributions and then just spend that money on yourself. Right. Or or on bunnies. Sure. So flying bunnies across the country. And or on 30 tequila shots and one steak. Well, yep. and to extend this, it's a really important campaign finance point, right? Because the Supreme Court has said basically that you can't limit campaign finance too much, right? That it's free speech. And the Congress at the various times it has tried to regulate campaign spending has said, no, 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 you have to let us regulate this because it's a way of regulating corruption. Right. right. So the idea that the Supreme Court has laid down is that you can't limit campaign spending because campaign spending is speech. It's not a way of bribing the candidate. But that then means that the campaign money has to be used on campaigning rather than on just like the congressman having fun. Because if it's not used for campaigning, it's then it really is speech. just a way yeah. of paying him, right? Right. And so you get into a lot of stuff that is definitely not illegal, but that like raises this question, right? Which is that if you have $100,000 in your campaign account, you can spend $100,000 on a golf fundraiser, right, where you go and fly first class and go to a lavish golf resort and you can raise $100,000 and one from that. And you can say, aha, I'm using campaign money on campaigning. And somebody else might look at that and be like, no, this guy's really just using his campaign war chest to take himself on golf vacations, right? right. So Duncan Hunter is charged with pushing this too far. Right, with using campaign money for his rabbit, having his wife falsify the paperwork on just like their clothing shopping, stuff like that. So Cohn pled guilty to the opposite of this, right, which is that when you do campaign spending, you have to file forms with the Federal Election Commission saying like this is what I'm doing, you know, this is who I paid, blah, 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 blah. And basically when they wrote the checks to Stormy Daniels and to Karen McDougal, the point was to keep their stories secret. So you couldn't write on your FEC paperwork, oh, here's a bunch of money I paid Stormy Daniels because that would raise the question of why they had paid this money to Stormy Daniels, which would defeat the purpose. Also, the federal elections law generally prohibits individuals from contributing more than $2,700 to a candidate, especially for 2016. And $130,000 is more than $2,700. Yes. There are not enough Michaels Cohn in all the world. Yes. And then the later invoice to the Trump organization for $420,000. Again, that is more than $2,700. Right. But for Trump, so like Trump can spend unlimited amounts of his own money right. on his campaign. But nevertheless, he has to say, this is my campaign money and this is what I'm doing with it, right? And they basically came up with like a lot of efforts to work right. around this. But like there, there is no workaround. Right. <laughs> However, it, you know, here it should be said. An argument that they could have made had this gone to trial, which it didn't because Cohn just pled guilty, and that Trump could have made in his Fox and Friends interview if he knew what he was talking about, is that you could say, look, this wasn't campaign spending, right? right? Like this is what John Edwards did. Like John Edwards was hauled to court on a very similar charge involving paying off his mistress 
And the argument that they made successfully in court was that it wasn't about keeping it from the public. It was about keeping it from Elizabeth Edwards, who was dying of cancer at the time, that they really didn't want to upset the Edwards marriage. And therefore, it didn't matter that they weren't following campaign finance regulations because it wasn't campaign spending. It was spending that, you know, friends of John Edwards were doing to protect John Edwards's marriage. Right. And so this resulted in a hung jury. I believe, um, and then and then the Justice Department dropped the case. Right. So, a salient point here is that Cohn pled guilty, right? So, one thing you could say as a pundit is, look, this is the same as the John Edwards situation. Right, John Edwards right. got off. One reason that it's different from the John Edwards situation, nominally at least, is that Michael Cohn, the president's personal attorney who arranged this whole payment, has attested in a court of law that this was a campaign activity. Right. So if Donald Trump weren't president, right, like if he had just lost the election but everything else had happened exactly as it has happened, you now have a situation where the U.S. attorney has like signed off on this plea agreement and like the text of the plea agreement is that Michael Cohn is saying they did this to break campaign finance law and he's saying that he did it at the direction of the candidate Donald Trump. It's a little bit of a pointless hypothetical to imagine Donald Trump weren't president, but you wouldn't do that, right? You would not file that kind of paperwork with the court unless you were going to go forward and also charge the boss because it doesn't make sense, right? Either they should reject the plea in some sense and say like, no, you're just like casting dirt on this guy for no reason. Or they have to say, yeah, like we believe that that's what happened, in which case Trump is breaking the law. However, Trump is president, it's disputed whether you can charge the president with crimes. And also the president would say, I think, if I can try to clean up his lawyering for him, that what's going on here is that they had Cohn on this tax stuff that Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with Donald Trump. And so then Cohn, to try to make his life easier for himself, has decided to dirty up Donald Trump. Right. That's the legal argument that I would make. What Trump actually said in his Fox and Friends interview was gibberish. And he tried to say this was all okay because they didn't use campaign money. Uh, Which is But that's the crime. Right. Right. So what he wants to argue is that this had nothing to do with the campaign, that he never told Michael Cohn this had anything to do with the campaign, and that Cohn is making this up in a desperate effort to get a deal. Although the fact that Cohn doesn't have a deal – somewhat undermines that. Right. I mean, so to just engage in a little bit of a hypothetical, but one that I think would be instructive, like in a world where Donald Trump isn't president and Donald Trump now gets hauled into court on conspiracy to evade campaign finance laws based on the things that Michael Cohn has already pled guilty to, Trump is not going to successfully persuade a judge or jury that Michael, well, Maybe he would, but like Michael Cohn has already basically said that as far as Michael Cohn was concerned, it should have been campaign money. He was evading campaign finance laws. What Trump would be more likely to do would be to say, look, I didn't know about this until after the fact. It's not my fault that my lawyer decided to do something illegal because he thought he was doing me a favor. And then Michael Cohn would then go in with, you know, more of the details that weren't in the written, you know, plea stipulation, but came out in court on Tuesday about, you know, when he talked to Trump and what Trump said and that 
tape recording that came out a couple of weeks ago about paying off Karen McDougal would probably resurface and would get parsed. And then it would be a question of what did Donald Trump know and when did he know it? Because and this is something else that has kind of come up in the comparative stuff here. Just because a candidate's campaign did something illegal doesn't mean the candidate is liable for it. Like when Barack Obama's campaign got fined by the FEC for a lot of late filings, it was a big FEC fine. And like that's now been turned into, well, it was a bigger offense than Michael Cohen is engaged in because there was more money involved in the fine. If Barack Obama were hypothetically getting hauled, you know, before the FEC and fined for this, they would have had to show that he personally understood right. and condoned right. so, it. And they, d- so, and they never did, no, which I think that's the difference is that, you know, with the, it was interesting because you also saw, like, Trump bringing up Dinesh D'Souza, who was also a convicted straw donor. But the issue is that with D'Souza and with Trump and Cohen is that they all did this willfully. There's no evidence that the Obama campaign willfully or knowingly failed to file complete FEC paperwork. And the FEC, since 2015, it should be noted, has flagged nearly 25,000 excessive, impermissible, undisclosed, and otherwise suspicious contributions to Trump's presidential campaign, totaling more than $14 million. So if we want to go down that road, we can. Let's take a break now and talk about the kind of deal making here. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Trump is clearly worried and he is expressing a concern that what Cohn said is going to become the basis for some kind of case against him, right? It's not an open and shut case. It would depend on what the 
evidence is exactly. But he's kind of – Trump has thrown some chum out there that doesn't really add up, right? And so one, as Dara said, is, oh, Obama did a worse thing. Right. Right. But no, like what happened is that the Obama campaign's paperwork filing people did something and they were fined and the campaign paid the fine. But the accusation here is that Donald Trump personally directed this, uh, which nobody ever alleged about Barack Obama. And then the second thing is that Trump has said that like this is fine because they weren't using campaign money. But like again, that's what he's accused of. What we have in terms of evidence is what Cohn said and we have that audio tape that he released, right? So on the audio tape, Trump appears to be discussing the modality of making a payment to uh, David Pecker and his uh, National Enquirer group. And it appears to be in the context of a conversation about the presidential campaign, right? That what they're talking about before that is campaign stuff. And nobody brings up Melania or anything in that conversation. So, I mean, I think a a legal case, if you were talking about an ordinary legal case, would center around whether Cohn has more backup for sort of my read of what was on the tape or do we have a interpretation of an audio recording that, you know, I'm going to say I'm persuaded but somebody who came at it with more MAGA priors might see their way clear and we honestly just don't know, right? Like you would rifle through the Trump organization's paperwork, you know, various other things It seems like if what Michael Cohen said is true, he probably would have more evidence to back it up than what we know now. The only way to know that would be like a real investigation. But we don't have a real investigation as far as we know because we're in a weird situation, right? When Ken Starr was appointed to run the independent counsel's office for Whitewater – He took and was encouraged to take by congressional Republicans and by the judge uh, overseeing him because the the statute worked differently, an extremely expansive view of his mandate. So things started coming his way that did not relate particularly to the Whitewater land deal but suggested potential wrongdoing on the part of Bill Clinton. So he and and Brett Kavanaugh, they thoroughly investigated the idea that Hillary Clinton had had Vince Foster killed and they wound up investigating the charge that Bill Clinton had lied in a civil deposition about Paula Jones, about an affair with an intern in the White House and that became the centerpiece of Ken Starr's prosecution. You know, when liberals would say, well, this had nothing to do with who he was appointed for, but he had the legal authority to do that, and so it was what it was. Robert Mueller is not like that. He's not like an all-purpose Trump administration ombudsman. So he, in the course of his investigation, came up with something related to Michael Cohn. We don't know exactly what. It was kicked over to the Southern District of New York. They investigated Michael Cohn. They found evidence that Michael Cohn had committed crimes. Part of that investigation has now, again, implicated Donald Trump, but in a crime that has nothing to do with Russia. So it's not kicked back to Mueller in any kind of obvious way. And it also would be unique in American history for a regular U.S. attorney's office to mount a criminal prosecution of a sitting president of the United States and they are not really saying what they are doing. And if the American political system were functioning the way it's supposed to on paper, like this would be time for Congress to step in and 
offer some kind of view, right, <laughs> about, like, what they would like to see happen here, right? You know, there's formal powers, but just also informal powers, right? The Speaker of the House saying, I think it would be a good idea for the Justice Department to instruct the special counsel we already have to look into this. Or he could say, I think it would be a good idea to appoint a new special counsel to look into this. Right. Or he could say, it sounds like the Southern District has a handle on this case, and I would like to see them go forward with it, or I want Congress to have hearings. Or, you know, you could say, like, forthrightly, it is the opinion of Congress that there's a reason that there is a firewall against indicting a sitting president, and we are not inclined to do anything about things that are not related to the conduct of the presidency. We've yes. already done, like, but they're not saying that. They're just kind of saying, oh, it's not our job, which it manifestly is. Right, yes. I mean, exactly. Like, their job is to say something about the running of the country. Because, wait, as you say, Dara, like, another thing would be to say, like, explicitly, like, we do not think that there should be an inquiry into Donald Trump's pre-presidential conduct of any kind, that, like, it is inappropriate to have prosecutions of a sitting president. Like, checks and balances is about the conduct of the presidency, not about stuff that happened before then. I think they don't want to say that forthrightly because it's a tough sell politically, but it would make some kind of sense logically. Um, instead, we just have a kind of dangling in which, I mean, who knows, like, you know, possibly like a grand jury will indict Trump this afternoon and the whole podcast will look dumb. And the marshal of the Supreme Court will go arrest him. <laughs> um, probably not, though. But it's like it's very awkward. And then it has the president out on television saying, well, this whole practice – of prosecutors getting people to flip on their bosses should be outlawed because he's clearly simultaneously worried that Paul Manafort is going to crack under this right. pressure because Manafort, unlike Cohn, is clearly a witness to some of the Trump family's Russia-related activity. The special counsel would really, really like him to cooperate, seems to believe that he has something important he could say. And Trump keeps... Uh, I mean, really, like, talking like a like a television mobster. Like, right, talking right. about, like, how Manafort's, like, being such a stand-up guy. Yeah. And he's, right, he's, right, right. he's he no rat, rat. Yep. you know, like, Paulie's a good earner. Like, it's like— <laughs> I know. It's, I want to kind weird. of—I want to back up and, appro and run at this a little more directly. What we're saying here is that the firewall that the Southern District of New York is currently running into is an extremely weird firewall for prosecutors. It is generally not the case that when engaging in an ongoing investigation, you find evidence of potential criminal activity against someone you cannot prosecute. Like, that is not something that exists normally. And generally, the prosecutorial practice is you have some evidence of wrongdoing that makes you open an investigation. And as that investigation is ongoing, you know, you're going to try to come up with a criminal charge that is the most serious charge you can prove. That, like, even if you find that there isn't enough evidence to go in there and you know, get somebody convicted of the thing you initially thought they were doing, if they've done something else illegal, you bring them up on that, which is why so many of the first indictments in the Mueller investigation were for making false statements to investigators, because that's something that you can easily prove that comes up during an investigation. That's why, you know, there was a little bit of not dismay, but surprised that the charges on which Cohn was pleading guilty were so mild compared to some of the really lurid, you know, criminal activity that he's been engaged in in the past, some of which we got into in our previous podcast. 
if you're only charging for some light things, that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't do anything else wrong, but it does mean that, you know, you've decided you're hauling this guy in and the things that you're hauling him in for are a secondary consideration to that. This is the opposite of that. There is a person, the president, who it doesn't matter what the Southern District of New York comes up with on him. They are, for reasons relating to an interpretation of constitutional law, probably not going to bring charges. Maybe they will, but everything we've gotten from this Justice Department does not indicate that that is like a likely thing in the offing. And so what Trump is making is a critique of how prosecutors normally work, about the amount of power that prosecutors normally have in the course of an investigation, but he's applying it to himself, the one person who is protected from the way that prosecutors normally work. I also, I, I want to go quickly to the the flipping thing. Yes, no, let's, yes. Ta- let's talk yeah, about flipping. Because Rudy Giuliani, when he was a prosecutor in New York City in the 1980s, before he was mayor and before he was whatever it is he is now, He was a big fan of flipping because flipping is how you generally break down any criminal organization ever. What you do is you get a underling of some sort and you say, if you tell us things about the person who's above you, you will get a lesser sentence or immunity when you testify or something like that. And lesser person, who is, in this case, not an idiot, says, okay, I would rather not go to prison for 20 years. I will tell you these things in exchange for something. Therefore, you have flipped. Right. And then you go to the other person above them, and you're like, this person has told us all this stuff. They are willing to testify against you unless you flip against the person above you. Right. right. And this is how this works. This is how it has always worked. And it, it's very interesting. We've, we've all seen this on television. Exactly. Right, right. Like, is- and eventually, as in on television, and like The Wire at least does yes. get this right, you get to a point where, yeah— you have people below them who are willing to testify, but when the person at that level isn't cooperating with you, you may not have enough evidence to bring them in. Like just right. having the people testifying against them, you know, judges and juries are often skeptical of the kind of things that people say when it's clear that they are getting favors from the prosecution in order to say sure. them. But exactly. this is why, I mean, also as seen on television, also true. You, you can seek more active forms of cooperation for I, I mean th- this is how they not just on TV but but in reality have like done the big mafia prosecutions ultimately right is both by getting cooperators to testify and also by getting cooperators to actively cooperate in making recordings and, and gathering intelligence and, and things like that I mean I think it's fair to say like this is the cornerstone of complicated federal criminal prosecutions Mm -hmm. in the United States. It is a little bit marginal to the, like, main practice of policing, which is, like, mostly not federal law enforcement and mostly not big, complicated cases. But the kind of, like, prestige stuff that makes you, like, a famous (laughs) prosecutor, like, this, this is what you do. Right. When you have an institution or an organization that is engaged in criminal activity, you know, you don't get to like corporations, maybe people in some senses of the law, but you do not get to haul a corporation in for crimes. You do not get to haul an organized crime syndicate in for crimes. So what has to happen is you have to locate like the locus in the person where you can say this person did a crime. And so there's a push and pull between 
who was ultimately responsible for the doings of the organization and who had, you know, mens rea or sufficient knowledge and deliberate will in committing the crime and, you know, on who can you prove it and all of that stuff. This is usually what happens. It's just usually not the case that the organization in question was a presidential campaign. And that means that the person at the head of the organization is now in this weird, vaguely unprosecutable position. Right. That said... The arguments that are being made by Trump's defenders that any testimony being given by someone who has a hope of being asked to cooperate, because it's worth noting Michael Cohn has not yet been sentenced. He has pled guilty. That means that he's going to have to serve some kind of criminal penalty. But the SDNY hasn't filed a sentencing report yet. And so there is kind of an argument that could theoretically be made that Cohn is hoping that if he offers something useful to Mueller, that he will get recommended a more lenient sentence by prosecutors because that is explicitly a thing that you can that you can and are supposed to do in a sentencing report. George Papadopoulos, his sentencing recommendation came out recently, and one of the things that was said in there was, we do not believe he should get a lean, more lenient sentence for cooperating with us because he didn't really cooperate with us that much. Right. Like, this is a part of the process. And yeah, there are concerns to be raised about when is that testimony freely given versus being in some way coerced? And how much do you discount the truth value of that? Yes, it's perjury to lie in a sworn court filing, but also this is someone who has demonstrated that he is willing to commit crimes. How much should you necessarily believe the things that he says are true? And that's not a very easily answerable question. It is almost certainly true that, A, people will lie to protect themselves, and B, that people will plead guilty to things that they didn't commit, especially if those are lesser crimes that are offered as part of a plea deal. So, like, in the criminal justice system, these are good questions. In this particular case, they are not great questions. Right. (laughs) The question is whether this is something that is actually opening people's eyes to problems in the system or whether it is literally just Donald Trump is above the law. I'm going to go with the latter on that, which is something, you know, I've been very entertained by Sean Hannity apparently discovering the wonders of criminal justice reform and starting to talk about a two-tiered justice system, which I was like, oh, that's so exciting. I'm really looking forward to, you know, when you start writing for reason. But I think that there very much is a sense that we could be having the conversation about how the criminal justice system works. And I think that there are a lot of well-meaning people who believe that that is the conversation we are currently having. It is not. Well, it, the, I, the people who are defending Trump are not actually interested in I criminal mean, justice I mean, reform. I, mean, I, I, I think there's a pretty strong tell here, which is that conveniently Donald Trump and his political allies are in fact <laughs> bestowed with legislative power in the United States, right? So I've read a certain number of takes going all the way back to Michael Flynn's guilty plea, right? Because he pled guilty to a a false statements to federal investigators charge. And this is something that I think lefty and civil libertarian critics of law enforcement have always thought is bullshit, right? That the FBI can haul you in, Mm -hmm. sweat you for hours, catch you up on something that they say you contradicted yourself or contradicted something they know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now we're going to charge you and now you have to do what we want to get out of this false statements charge. That's a practice that a lot of people really have been critical of. Since it happened to Michael Flynn, I've seen a lot of 
Trump fans raise these criticisms. Mm -hmm. What I haven't seen any Trump fans do, because some Trump fans are members of the United States Congress. Yes. Like, they are the ones who could change this, right? Like, the reason the FBI can do this, it's not because, like, they're assholes or because, like, Matt on Twitter is too credulous. Like, there is an actual federal law. Like, it is a real crime. And, like— The way to stop the FBI from doing this is to change the law. And it's not just that they haven't changed the law. Like, they don't have a message bill that would change the law, right? Because if you were to change the law, to even propose changing the law, right, federal investigators would come up to Capitol Hill and they'd be like, no, congressman, that's a terrible idea, right? Like, you would be picking a fight with the individuals in federal law enforcement that they care about a lot. Yes. And while Trump has been very eager to pick at people in the Justice Department and people in the FBI, he really is a law and order politician, right? Like it is important to him to have the support of rank and file law enforcement personnel. And Democrats, you know, and Trump critics will want to say that like Trump's tweets slamming Bruce Orr constitute like the kind of attacks on law enforcement that conservatives hate. But like Trump is is really trying to not do that, right? Yeah, this gets into a much bigger thing I have about the rule of law versus law and order. Right, right. But, 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 yeah. but I'm just saying that like to attempt a systematic reform of this would require a real fight with the full body of federal law enforcement who are – they are very – they really like having this tool. Right. Right. And, and, and it is explicitly and, and, a tool. Like this and, and, is – Right. But it, it's like Trump and his allies, they are not trying to take this tool away. They are simply trying to say that like – this is a tool that should be used against people who aren't Donald Trump. Preferably if they're, you know, non-white or in dealing with, like, small-level drug offenses. As you were saying, law and order and the rule of law are two entirely different things here. Right, and I mean, when we say it's a tool, essentially what we are saying is all sides agree that this is something that is nominally illegal, that is not going to be prosecuted in every case or even close to every case, and that is not only— an acceptable thing, but it is actually good, that it is good to have discretion to figure out when that's the crime you want to haul somebody in on. That gets into kind of another critique that's been raised, particularly of the campaign finance things that Michael Cohn pled guilty to, that campaign finance laws are broken everywhere and that therefore it is unfair to prosecute in this particular case, which is a very interesting claim to be made, particularly by Rudy Giuliani, who, of course, was, you know, rose to national prominence primarily as the mayor of New York for engaging in, you know, the aggressive and at the time new form of broken windows policing, which was we're going to enforce even small laws wherever we see infractions, not because we think we're going to catch everybody, but because we're sending a message to the people we do catch that this is bad. So Rudy Giuliani is now saying, if you can't prosecute everybody, why even bother to prosecute anybody, which is kind Mm. of against the tool theory of you know, why you have these crimes to begin with. Again, it's because, as Matt was saying, to the people who are doing the most defending of Donald Trump, the point is that those tools are there to be used against other people. It is theoretically possible that you could see people using these tools for political reasons, that they could be used against some politicians and not against other politicians. But people like Rudy Giuliani aren't saying that it should be apolitical (laughs) because saying it should be exempt for an entire elite class to violate a certain kind of laws because you can't 
violate campaign finance laws if you don't have enough money to give that it would violate campaign finance laws. Right. You know, that's still a political argument. It's just a different kind of politics. But, but so for, for my part, rather than making like a, a pure hypocrisy argument here, I'm, I'm going to put my cards on the table, right, and say like, I think that this special pleading on Trump's behalf with regard to the Russia investigation is total bullshit. Right, that like the Russia charges are really, really serious, and it is really, really important to investigate them quite aggressively, like on the merits. Like we really need to know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the best that we can. Conversely, though, going over to this Michael Cohen campaign finance thing, I don't know exactly what the legal modalities of this are, but like I think the optimal solution to this would be to like put a pin in it. And say that, like, at some point in time when Donald Trump is no longer president of the United States, we're going to not let the statute of limitations expire. And, like, if he is personally liable for some campaign finance offense, like, he's going to get the fine, you know, whatever it is that happens. But for the sake of Donald Trump's presidency, like, this is actually not important. And we should not allow ambitious probably left-of-center attorneys who work in New York City and want to be famous, like, snarl the country's political system up in a kind of ticky-tack campaign finance violation. Yeah, like, it is not— That seems subs fair. That he, We shouldn't say, like, the law doesn't apply because he happened to have won the election. But, like, also, like, national politics does not need to be dominated by this question of whether or not they filed the correct paperwork about their payoff to Karen McDougal. We have learned that the payoff existed, right? Like, the, the public interest in this has been fully— exhausted. And if you are really concerned about Donald Trump's fidelity to his wives, I have some, I have some really bad news for you. Um, but I actually think the cases are quite different in that regard, right? Like Trump is asserting that the whole Russia investigation is a witch hunt. It, it just isn't a witch hunt. Right. Like the, the charges there are like very, very serious. At the same time, I think there is good reason to believe that if we just rummaged through all of the Trump Organization paperwork for the past 30 years, we could probably find a lot of right. sort of white-collar mm -hmm. criminal violations. And as I said on a previous podcast, like, I think that's a serious systematic problem in the United States. But I think the experience of the uh, Italian center-left in the 90s and the aughts has like a, a cautionary tale for Democrats here, which is like centering your politics on trying to find criminal charges to bring against the opposition political leader. It's not just a question of like, is it foul play? But like, it doesn't really work. Right. Like, you need to persuade people. I mean, as I think like the Trump poll numbers are bad, like I don't actually want to say that Democratic Party politicians have been doing this, but I think a lot of Democratic politics fans have to, like, try to substitute a, like, we're going to get you on the law mm -hmm. for we're going to persuade you that putting our people in charge of the government is going to make your life better. It's just like it's not going to – it's not going to work, right? The Russia thing is close enough. The conduct of foreign policy is a core presidential responsibility. So, like, if Donald Trump is involved in shady dealings with the Russian government, like, that's a bona fide political issue. Uh, if Donald Trump, before he was president, was involved in shady dealings with his mistresses, it's, like, it's genuinely not that important. The thing that is, is a though, good argument that no one is making. That is true. And it, well, it, that's it, here <laughs> on the prominent uh, – 
policy podcast, The Weeds. <laughs> so the issue here, I think there's two separate parts of this. There is the decontextualized issue, which I believe you are bringing up. And then there's the contextualized issue. Okay. Because it's not just Trump. It's Trump and it's Duncan Hunter and it's everyone who Trump has ever hired in the history of collective time. Is this the culture of corruption, James? Yes, it is the culture of corruption. And you see the polling that the DNC has been doing on what voters think about corruption. They're not huge fans. And which party they believe to be more corrupt. It's the Republican Party. And I think that that is a message that's workable, for especially for the midterms, because midterms are not about necessarily like we are better. It's they are worse. And I think the fact that you have the first two members of Congress to support Trump being indicted for crimes, that's bad. And the third member of Congress to endorse Trump, by the way, is Jeff Sessions, who is currently having his own journey of the soul. But I think that obviously the ins and outs of campaign finance law are the kind of things that, you know, whenever people started talking about uh, whitewater, immediately everyone's eyes glazed over until it had to do with affairs and sex. And then people were way more interested. But I think that the story here, it isn't just about this specific incident. It's the fact that the person who ran on a drain-the-swamp platform. And I I want people to remember that that wasn't just something that people chanted at Trump rallies. There was actually a policy paper of sorts that had to do with limiting the power of lobbyists and saying that if you left government, you couldn't just go get some great lobbying job somewhere, which, you know, has never happened. The swamp has not been drained. The the swamp is doing pretty well. The swamp has now been turned into, well, what we were talking about is the idea that there is a permanent class of federal government employees who are implacably liberal and who are, you know, like they've successfully changed the meaning of that to something that they are kind of doing. But this is one where Jane had the receipts. Like, I appreciate the receipts. I had actually forgotten about about that receipt. Um, <laughs> yes. But the argument on Drain the Swamp is a solid one, but kind of brings up one of the other points that I've seen raised as all of this has been happening, which is if it is true that the kind of tiki tack campaign finance stuff that Michael Cohen was found guilty of is in fact endemic to Congress, which like, fine, I'm willing to stipulate that there are very few campaigns that could survive a total audit, you know, that could survive a Bob Mueller plus the SDNY combing through sure. their, you know, all of their activity and could get out of that without a single fine from the FEC. Okay. So if you assume that, that gives members of Congress, including Democrats in Congress, very little incentive to ruffle feathers about this particular thing. That, like, they're not going to call for particularly, you know, strict punishment for people in the Trump campaign who went around campaign finance law because they don't want to invite the same level of scrutiny for themselves. And that doesn't sound wrong. That sounds like the swamp being a lot stronger than any particular attempt to drain it. But if that is true, and I think it's worth grappling with on the prospect that, you know, Democrats take at least one House of Congress, in which case they won't just be able to engage in oversight of the Trump administration, but in theory, they'll be able to pass laws changing the criminal code (laughs) to reflect these things they think should happen. 
that means that as much as Democratic members of Congress say that they think the Trump administration is an existential threat, they would face the question of whether they are willing to possibly put their own practice of politics at risk in order to tighten the screws on Trump. We'll have to see if that survives or not. I think we we owe the swamp another ad break. Oh, man. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. To bring this back to, to the policy weeds a little bit, like suppose you were just like really concerned about the problem of federal prosecutors and sort of having too much discretion, too many tools, too much ability to kind of lean on people to produce not that reliable cooperation. Like, like what could you do? Like what would a sensible reform kind of be? Because it's so entrenched in American practice that I think a lot of people sort of have trouble seeing past what's going on here. I will make sure we get in show notes a really good Twitter thread by Ken White of Pope Hat on this. Ken White has become the commentariat's favorite uh, defense lawyer because he's extremely good at explaining these things in a clear and systemic way while also making clear that in this particular case, people are behaving often very stupidly. Indeed. Ken White did treat this premise with a certain amount of, you know, good faith the other day to walk through some of the things that you could do. And essentially, they look like creating more protections, both legal and resource, for defendants and putting in stricter limitations on what prosecutors can and can't do. So he's, you know, he's putting up like, well, if you made sure that that every criminal defendant had a lawyer and were well-funding criminal defense in all cases, then you would probably make it easier for defendants to actually fight their cases rather than, you know, some 95 plus percentage of them pleading guilty to whatever rather than going to trial, Uh, which is something that happens often because public defender offices, they're playing a repeat player game. They don't want to fight every case because then prosecutors will get mad at them and will be particularly difficult on the cases where they really need prosecutors to give them a break. And I think that this also goes to something 
that really illustrates the degree to which we're not talking about overall criminal justice reform, which is Ken brought up the point about how we view criminal defense attorneys and public defenders in cases that don't have to do with the president of the United States. And, you know, I've got a good friend who was a public defender in New York and is now a defense attorney in Wisconsin. And she went through, I believe in 2016, she went through more than 300 cases. And a lot of that was pleading people. Because yeah. in some of those cases, they could not fight the case because you're a public defender and you're in, you're working with someone who's already in Rikers and their goal is to no longer be in Rikers and the prosecutor will offer something that will make them not be in Rikers. And I think that it really gets to the difurcated nature of this conversation that a lot of people keep trying to put back together. We are not talking about criminal justice reform. That is a conversation I am here for. I am here for it all day to really change sentencing guidelines and talk more about how we think about our adversarial justice system. We are not talking about that. I mean, we are talking about there, Donald if, Trump. If we were to, however, like yes, if, if we, we as the we, right. were to have we, that smarter conversation. Yes. I think the, the takeaway from this thread and like I can go through some of this more specific stuff, but instead I'm going to strongly recommend that you check out the show notes because it's pretty concisely put here and I don't want to just read Ken's words. But what you would be dealing with if you tried to attack this in a systemic way would be a three-sided problem. On one side are the resources. On one side are the kind of legal tools that prosecutors have, such as the kind of process crimes like lying to investigators, you know, the cases in which prosecutors do and don't have to turn over evidence to the defense, the extent to which how long a criminal sentence is is essentially determined by what crimes with which enhancements are getting charged in charging documents rather than the judge or jury. And so that's kind of the second side. And the third side is a cultural thing in which prosecutors are trusted. And this has actually been one of the more interesting sides of the debate over Manafort and Cohn has been this insistence by some people even within the center-left resistance, such as, I don't know, Preet Bharara, you know, former prosecutor, that this is proof that the system works. Prosecutors were independent and did a good job and have now found for sure that they would not have allowed Michael Cohn to say things that they didn't believe to be true, that this is all, you know, solid gold bona fide evidence that they've turned over. And a lot of criminal justice reformers have been like, what are you doing? Just because all of those things happened, may have happened in this particular case, says absolutely nothing about the merits of the system as a whole. But using this to bolster the reputation of prosecutors is exactly the kind of problem that leads someone to be worried that if they go to trial, that a jury won't give them a fair shake because a jury will trust the prosecutors more, judges will trust the prosecutors more, that there's this cultural bias toward prosecutors as independent and above suspicion actors that makes it impossible in an adversarial justice system to actually equal out both sides. But so here's where I have sympathy for, I think, a lot of Ken's takes on this and some of the libertarian critiques of, like, going overboard on on resistance. But also, you know, like, when I read his thread, when I think about this, when I hear from people, I am struck by how much of the real issues here are about the economics rather than about the legal procedure, right? That like when you look at the Paul Manafort case, you see that it's it's really hard in the American justice system to railroad 
a wealthy defendant who has time and money to right. fight the case as vigorously as possible because proof beyond a reasonable doubt by a unanimous decision of 12 jurors is actually a really high standard. You know what I mean? Like it's really quite difficult, right? The reason that it's easy for prosecutors is that, you know, the old thing they say like the grand jury would indict a ham sandwich if you wanted to. Fighting a case the way Manafort has been fighting it is extraordinarily expensive. Public defenders, I got on people's wrong side by trying to comment on this once and so I want to be really careful. But public defenders have a lot of work that they are supposed to do. They don't have the time and the luxury of mounting a maximally vigorous defense of each and every person who comes their way in the way that a private practice attorney leading a big legal team for a multimillionaire does, right? So it seems to me that a, a lot of the the abuses that come in here come into like how shabbily we treat the interests of normal people in the legal system, right? We treat a criminal trial as if it's a question of purely private concern, whether or not the person is actually guilty. Right. But like that's not right. It's yeah. a question of urgent public concern, whether the defendant is guilty. That's that's why the trial is public. But that means that like we have a public policy interest in making sure that a full defense is presented and we just don't act that way. But I worry a lot about the idea of a form of reform that doesn't do anything to increase the resources at the disposal of low-income defendants, mm -hmm. but instead simply makes it harder for prosecutors to take on the quite challenging task of prosecuting wealthy defendants. Right. Right. And that is where I always wonder about this this kind of discourse that like you look at prosecuting Paul Manafort or you look at prosecuting uh, financial crimes, right? Like that is not easy, no. right? Because like those guys have money and because prosecutors don't like earn applause from everybody and advance their political career by charging like businessmen who have donated to neighborhood charities and, and have right. friends and stuff out there. Yeah, and so, you know, I mean, it depends what you get them on. But like, I, I think it's important to like really focus on like what's the core of the problem here. And it's not that like a guy like Donald Trump is going to be treated – I mean not just a guy like Donald Trump in the sense of the president of the United States. A guy like Donald Trump in the sense of a multimillionaire real estate baron is not being treated shabbily by the legal system it seems to me. Matt, you have successfully persuaded me that at some point during a slow news week we need to do an hour on what we can do to bolster public defenders. Ugh. Yes, I am here for it. Oh my we, God, we can talk about Brady violations. Oh, this yes. is going to be great. And we have so many slow news weeks. Yes. Uh, so yeah. with that, I think we should probably wrap up. Uh, let all of you have your own slow news weeks digesting our fine, fine podcasts. Head us up in the uh, in the Facebook group, uh, the Weeds group, if you have uh, great ideas about how to make public defenders offices have resources they need. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. The Weeds shall return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? 
every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.